financials very much, therefore, have a unique relationship with fraud. What's interesting is examples we've mentioned are where the fraud has been conducted by members of that organization, by executives within that organization themselves. The flip side is the benign perspective is that financial companies are also victims of fraud from outside. Hello and welcome to Signals by AlphaSense, where we hear thoughtful insights from business leaders, investors, and experts. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Signals by AlphaSense, and I'm your host, Nick Mazie. Today, we're going to talk about how financial institutions fail with Mark Rubinstein, who is a former financials analyst. Currently, he's writing that interest, and we'll have all the relevant links in the show notes. I'm personally a subscriber, and I can tell you that I have learned more about financial institutions from Mark than from anywhere else. I've been reading it for, I think, two years now. And I did learn quite a bit by experience as well. I worked at Lehman Brothers. And so financial institution failure is a topic that is near and dear to my heart. Maybe not dear, but certainly near. And Mark is also a client we've spoken before several times. I think he makes the perfect guest for a High Signal podcast. Mark, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure, Nick, and thanks for having me. As you said, I'm a former financials analyst. I worked as a partner in a hedge fund based in London for 10 years. We specialized exclusively in the financial services sector. So I would go touring the world, looking for opportunities on the long side and the short side in amongst financials. Prior to that, I'd been a sell-side financials analyst. I was at Credit Suisse, which is a firm very much in the news at the moment, but many years managing director there. And since leaving the hedge fund a few years ago, retained my interest in financials. It was a, a bigger component of the market than it is now. It's not as big a sector now as it was then, but it's still foundational, very important. And I find a lot of investors don't have, well, generalist investors don't have the knowledge of financials and hopefully my expertise can help them. I'm going to recommend the, the Substack again. I personally love it every Friday. There is a great write-up on several topics, actually. So now financial institutions play a special role in the economy, right? They, you have the, they connect savers with people who need credit, they facilitate payments. And you think about GDP, it really is actually payments, right? And it goes through the, through the system. So financial institution failures as a result are always very newsworthy and very risky because of the potential effects down the line. And I think what we're seeing now in the crypto space is a little bit of a crash course on why regulations exist. So I thought it would be very useful if our listeners have a good framework about how failures happen with financial institutions. So let's talk about fraud first. And, you know, recent prominent example was Wirecard, which was a German payments company. For our U.S. listeners, uh, it was a company that was in the DAX 30, which is called the Dow Jones of Germany, obviously extremely, extremely high profile situation. So what can you tell us about fraud? Well, Financial companies have, in my view, a unique relationship with, with fraud. You mentioned crypto, FTX, obviously a high profile current fraud case, Wirecard, which you mentioned. I don't think it's a coincidence that many of the highest profile fraud cases are financials. Financial companies are 
There was a famous bank robber in the US, Willie Sutton. He, he was asked why he robbed banks. And he said, because that's where the money is. Very famous line. And cognizant of that, those that work within financial companies clearly have the opportunity, if not the motive, to conduct fraud. Financials very much, therefore, have a unique relationship with fraud. What's interesting is examples we've mentioned are where the fraud has been conducted by members of that organization, by executives within that organization themselves. The flip side is the benign perspective is that financial companies are also victims of fraud from outside. There's data in the UK. I don't suspect it's that different in the US that for every 100 pounds spent, for every hundred dollars spent on a credit card, seven and a half cents, seven and a half P is skimmed off through, through fraud. It's a cost that we're all bearing. UK regulators have said that a couple of years ago, over a billion pounds was pilfered through the banking system by, by fraud. And actually twice that was caught at the door twice. So there was an attempt to defraud banks of 3 billion that was identified. A billion got away and 2 billion was caught at the door. So financial, it's where the money is. Financials are highly exposed to it, both as victims and as perpetrators. Mm -hmm. And dovetailing with that, the second way that we're discussing that framework is an honest way to fail, which is underwriting. And we'll talk about underwriting in, in the wider sense of the word. So there is obviously bank underwriting, let's say, you know, a bank gives credit to a consumer to buy a house or whether it's credit card based on, let's say, credit score or other profiles. There is also insurance underwriting. If we widen the definition of, of financial failures, when you look at, let's say, specifically, I'm more familiar with the United States, when you look at Florida homeowners insurance, a very famous graveyard for bad underwriting or another one, which is long-term care insurance, which is an insurance product that offer protection for long-term care expenses as people get older dramatically, dramatically underpriced and a number of companies ended up being under-reserved or in some other kind of trouble because of the bad underwriting. Now, obviously, the great financial crisis in the United States was also bad underwriting. It was based, you know, kind of in a classic Soros way. You know, there was a trend where the premise was wrong, right? And the, the premise that was wrong in this specific case was that in the U.S., national housing prices never go down, right? And it led to a lot of bad underwriting. So underwriting is supposed to be a core skill. But is it also core risk? How do you think about underwriting failures? So you're right. Underwriting is the fundamentally the core business of a lending institution or an insurance company. What's unique about that business line compared with selling a tangible product the way other companies might do is that the costs are known at the point the sale is made. The insurance premium is taken in. The loan is underwritten. The revenues are fairly transparent from that point on, but the costs are not. And this is what creates problems, particularly as the two cycles don't necessarily coincide. So the revenue cycle might be a function of the broader business cycle. You know, there's a famous line from the time of the financial crisis. It was Chuck Prince, who was the CEO of Citigroup, spoke about when the music's playing, you've got to keep dancing. 
And what he was referring to was the business cycle. The competitive environment made it very important for him in order to stay competitive to focus on price. Costs didn't matter because cost of risk didn't matter because it was going to have a long-term impact. An interesting point, actually. One of the reasons regulators, banking regulators, which have a big say in the way banking is conducted globally, bigger post-crisis than they did immediately pre-crisis. It's a really interesting point. They're not that keen on competition. You know, you would kind of think as market regulators, they should be extremely pro-competition. In fact, most financial regulators, competition is secondary to financial stability. And sometimes there can be a conflict between financial stability and competition. So again, going back to the financial crisis in the UK, it was suggested to one of the more successful banks that they take over one of the more failing banks. The competition authorities actually said no, that this would create too much of an oligopoly in UK retail banking. The government overrode that and said, doesn't matter, this is a financial stability issue and competition has to play second fiddle. Coming back to the point, so there's a market cycle which drives pricing, but there's also a credit cycle and the two aren't necessarily, as I say, aligned. You know, there's a famous point about the bezel, which was popularized by Galbraith and also Charlie Munger spoke about it. And it came, both of them make the point that there's a period of time, there's a time lag where money is being made. And in this context, banks are generating revenue, but the losses haven't yet been incurred. And he talks about that as he defined that, he classifies that as the bezel. How implications in terms of fraud? The first thing we discussed as well, there's a period of time between when the fraud has been initiated and where the victims, the fraud has been initiated, the fraudsters are benefiting from the value they're extracting from that fraud, but the victims don't yet feel that they are being defrauded. But it's the same in underwriting too. There's a period where accounting profits are being booked, but economic profits aren't really present. And that's a difficult thing when it comes to underwriting. It's true in insurance, it's true in banking. Butford has given some great examples of how he has suffered from it as well, because the way round it is through pricing. If that risk is priced for appropriately, irrespective of whether the music is still playing, then it can be absorbed through that excess profits when the losses ultimately accrue. Yeah, there is that famous Taleb chart, right? Of the Thanksgiving turkey, right? It keeps gaining weight and thinks things are great. And then <laughs> right before Thanksgiving Day, it gets, goes to zero. I mean, these have been going for years. Actually, bank failures, you know, you opened up this conversation talking about bank failures. We know of the headline cases. We know of Northern Rock in the United Kingdom, Washington Mutual and Lehman Brothers, where you worked in the US. They're actually more common than you would think. The FDIC publishes a list of failed banks. It updates it once a week. Typically, the FDIC, Federal Deposit Insurance Authority, will go in on a Friday night to resolve a failed bank over the course of the weekend. And they will announce it on the Friday night after the bank is closed. There actually hasn't been a failure of a US bank for a while. We're actually at the second longest streak historically where there hasn't been a failure. 
The last failure to occur was in October 2020. It was a, a small bank in Kansas. But what's interesting about it, if you drill down into it, is it was in a pretty crappy state because of poor underwriting for a long period of time. And actually the bank before that to fail, like a week before, also October 2020, a Florida-based bank had been unprofitable for 12 years. It was posting credit losses linked to poor underwriting on commercial real estate 12 years before it ultimately failed. So underwriting, very, very important, very important not to be consumed by the competitive environment and to pursue growth. You know, one of the heuristics that I and other investors in financial services apply is that growth is not necessarily good because today's growth is often the precursor for tomorrow's losses. And there are often reasons in an efficient competitive market why other financial institutions aren't taking on those risks, thus affording you that high growth. So we talk about fraud, we talk about underwriting. And the third way an institution can fail again, we're trying to have the framework in place here, is a run on the bank or you know, if you want to sound more sophisticated, you can call it an asset liability mismatch. <laughs> but, you know, you can really look at, like, go to Wikipedia, enter financial panic of, and see how many Wikipedia answers there are <laughs> There are on that. So it's a fundamental business risk, obviously, where, you know, a bank may be funded by short-term deposits, and then, then they long, let's say, a 30-year mortgage or a 15-year mortgage or a 10-year mortgage, and so on. And... In that case, the bank, if all the depositors want their money back, right, they can cover it if, if they want their money back at the same time. A lot of that risk has been in the United States and in other developed countries has been reduced quite a bit by, in the United States, is the FDIC, Federal Deposit, Deposit Insurance Company or Corporation, I forget what it means. But, you know, they cover depositors up to, I think, $250,000. And in other countries, there are similar fees, but you're still a counterparty. Right, there is still the risk that something can happen with that, and we saw some of that as well. Kind of the counterparty risk during the meme stock mania, when a number of the free brokerages actually stopped doing business <laughs> with people who wanted to buy certain stocks, right, because they had to put collateral just on the back end of of how it worked. So, can you discuss run on the banks and how they work? Yeah, there's a great line that bankers talk about. They say. Banks can either die of cancer in the loan book or a heart attack in treasury. The point being that we spoke in the context of underwriting driven failures, that failure can ultimately take a long time. When it comes to a run on the bank or the asset and liability mismatch that occurs in the treasury business that you mentioned, that will happen very, very quickly. And there's something of the psychology about it. There was uh, a case, you know, you talked about financial panic to the past. There was a case in the UK, there have been multiple cases. There was one that I can recollect now in the UK, just in 2019, where a rumor spread on a WhatsApp group around one bank, Metro Bank, public company, which had reported some losses, but a rumor went round that they were in trouble. Notwithstanding that the deposit insurance in place, and lines started forming outside some particular branches around London. These days, and this is reminiscent of the panics, you know, you mentioned my favorite is the financial panic of 1857. 
where half of the deposits of New York banks went in the form of a run. And the, the photos of that era of people lining up down Wall Street to withdraw their money are stock images of what a bank run is. These days, they tend to be more silent. We get a silent bank run. Clearly, it's possible to withdraw deposits online through electronic means. And therefore, the need to line up outside a bank is obviously diminished. Recently, we saw Credit Suisse. There was speculation about their financial position that became prominent in, on Twitter, actually, in October last year, beginning of October. There was an Australian-based journalist talked about authentically about a problem he'd heard amongst a major bank. And the company started suffering withdrawals, both of deposits and also wealth management products. And by mid-November, 6% of the group's assets under management had been withdrawn. Some of that's now come back, but that's kind of a, a recent, a recent mm -hmm. case. Mm -hmm. Can you comment on a similar dynamic? I think sometimes it happens with real estate funds. I think it was a, a case in the UK where essentially a run on the bank, but it wasn't a bank. It was simply people who had invested in illiquid assets through a fund. It's a really interesting point because, you know, I'm not a bank regulator, but I read a lot of what they publish and I'm quite close to various regulatory bodies. They are increasingly worried less about banks because there are frameworks in place through the requirement for them to hold certain levels of liquidity. So I'll come back to your question, but another example right now of a bank suffering a run is Silvergate in the US, La Jolla, California-based bank, very, very heavily immersed in crypto. About 90% of its deposits were from crypto firms. At the end of September, they had just shy of $12 billion of deposits, but because of the collapse in crypto, they suffered a run and they announced recently that they are down to less than 4 billion of deposits. They lost, they lost 8 billion out of 12 billion of deposits. It's huge. Now, in bygone days, that would have been a problem because the issue a bank faces is that it hasn't got that kind of cash on hand, doesn't have that liquidity available, hence the mismatch you spoke about to satisfy that degree of withdrawals. Regulatory requirements now require banks to have high quality liquid assets on, on hand. And what was interesting about Silvergate is, you know, they kind of announced, you know, the stock's down 90%, the company's in trouble, the deposits have all gone, but it's, it's still standing. And they had a conference call, they had an earnings call last week, and I think it was a Goldman Sachs analyst. He, you know, normally great quarter guys, uh, an analyst would throw that remark when the results were good. Here, he said, I've got the quote here. He said, I just want to say congratulations. I don't think that there are that many banks that could say with a 70% decline in deposits and come out of it with no operational liquidity issues. And it's kind of congratulations to the regulatory authorities for imposing that framework post-financial crisis, which requires banks to have liquidity. Now, back to your question, that's not the case for non-banks. There's been a kind of a lot of regulatory arbitrage that has happened because the regulations are more stringent on banks. A lot of institutions that kind of do banking type activities 
They take in funds, they invest those funds, there's an asset liability mismatch, but they're not banks. So they're not subject to those same regulations and they certainly don't have insurance. And they might be, because there was no premium on liquidity in the past 10 years, rates were zero, everything was liquid. And there were various new business models being generated to make illiquid things liquid. And consequently, a lot of these institutions, you know, you write about the one in the UK. To be fair, some of them, famous one is Blackstone. Blackstone Real Estate Income Trust put its gates up. But to be fair, they already specified that they had gates in place and that they would prevent withdrawals if they were to exceed certain limits. So that was all very clear. People may not have listened to it because there was no premium on liquidity previously, so they may not have listened to it, but that was always what was specified. So this risk now, this kind of run risk, I think it is much more of a risk outside the banking sector than in the banking sector, given regulations that have been put in place since the financial crisis. Mark, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Nick. This was Mark Rubinstein of Net Interest. We discussed how financial institutions fail and we specifically focused on fraud, bad underwriting and runs on the banks. My name is Nick Mazing. This is Signals by AlphaSense and you can subscribe to us on the major platforms. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us. This was another episode of Signals by AlphaSense. Keep in mind that all views presented here are the views of the guests and hosts and do not represent the views of their employers or of AlphaSense. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investing, tax, legal, or medical advice. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a rating and review and subscribe for more.